an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. LaTroy Hawkins joins us on Sports Byline, 21-year relief pitcher with 11 different teams. And when LaTroy retired, he was the only active player to be a member of the 1,000 Games Pitch Club. And at 42 years of age... He was the oldest active player in Major League Baseball, and he was drafted straight out of high school by the Minnesota Twins. LaTroy, you were raised in Gary, Indiana, and you were raised primarily by your mother, Deborah. Tell me a little bit about her. Um, my mom, Deborah, she was a single parent. Um, she was a nurse early on when I was a, a young fella, and then she started, uh, she went to school to be a cosmetologist, so she did hair. Um, she did the best she could, you know, with um, without you know having a, a a spouse in the household. Very stern. Uh, <laughs> she played the role of both parents, <laughs> and <laughs> she um, she laid down the the heavy hand. And you know, she did. She worked. She did what she had to do to to uh, provide for her three kids. And she taught us, you know, about hard work and perseverance, and um, you know never asking for a handout, you know, never want anything for free. You go out there and work for everything that you, you, you want and you go earn it. And that was her whole thing. You have to go out and earn, you know, your place in this, in this, in this, uh, big wild wide world. You know, you were also, uh, raised, uh, in part by your maternal grandparents. And I think about that because I had that same type of influence in my life as well. And I always was thankful for it, and I could put my finger on it, but I, I want to ask you, being in that uh, circumstance, what was it that you got out of life from that perspective that maybe other people would not have? Um, I think it's really a blessing to be able to um, have your grandparents around. Um, my grandfather just passed away May 9th, and he was 94 years old, and uh, he was remarried, and his new wife, Grandma Celestine, they had been married 55 years, so they were married long before I was born. Um, but my, that was my mom's father, 
you know, my mom's mom, she passed away in 06, and I spent a lot of time with her um, at her house because my mom worked, and they worked different schedules. So I, you know, had a chance to just be raised uh, a lot by my grandmother. It just showed me how how to um, how care for people, how empathy, um, how to share, how to understand that, you know, everybody needs help sometime, and don't be afraid to lend people help. And when you lend people help, don't do it with the with the uh, heart of wanting something in return because that's not what it's about. Uh, my grandma was a very caring lady. I mean, she had – I remember one time I was already in the big leagues and I was at her house and I was sitting in the kitchen talking to her and she had her back to the door and I was facing the door and I see this little white kid walks in her house, goes right in the refrigerator. And this just blew my mind. And I'm like <laughs> – Grandma, uh, who is that? It's like, uh, that's the family that lives across the alley. Their gas and light is off, so I'm letting them use my refrigerator. And that resonated with me so much because that's the type of person my grandmother was. You know, she didn't care what color you were, and she grew up in Mississippi. She saw the worst of worst of people. She saw the worst of the worst of people. And it didn't make a difference what color that family was. When they were down on their luck, they knew that they can count on uh, Miss Le- Lee. They knew they can count on her. And that right there, just that always sat with me. Like, my grandma was just that type of person. I mean, you can you can always go to her house, get a meal or two or maybe three. Didn't <laughs> a lot of, she didn't allow a lot of people to stay with her, but her door was always open. If you needed somewhere warm to go and you needed some food. You were always very talented as an athlete. Growing up in high school, you competed in basketball and football as well. And I was surprised to learn that you competed in basketball against Glenn Robinson, and you also received a full scholarship offer to play college basketball at Indiana State. How tough was the decision uh, to play baseball professionally? Uh, baseball had me hooked when they said they were going to pay me <laughs> right out of high school. <laughs> and I didn't have to go sit in the classroom again. But, yeah, I played against Glenn in high school. We were the same age, so we started playing against each other in like maybe the 7th or 8th grade. And there was a point where I was taller in the seventh and eighth and ninth grade. And then between our ninth uh, year, ninth grade year and our sophomore year, he grew probably about five or six inches over the summer. And the rest is history. But um, it was a good time competing. I mean, I, I enjoyed sports. Sports kept me out of trouble. So I tried to play as many sports as I could, keep me occupied. My grandparents and my mom made sure that whatever I wanted to play, they um, they made sure they put me in it and made sure I stayed in it. I couldn't quit once I was in. And, you know, same went for my brother and some of my cousins. You know, we had to, you know, if we wasn't working, we had to be playing sports. And I don't think back then I had a pretty good work ethic to be trying to work for money. I had a work ethic for sports. <laughs> you were raised in Gary, Indiana, and that's a hard scrabble type of town, uh, at least when you were growing up there. Uh, it was a steel town. And I'm just wondering – how did that forge some of your attitudes toward life? Well, I think like in that area, that that region of Indiana, we call it. We call, well, that area, Northwest Indiana, we call it the region, and uh, a lot of blue collar workers. Because when I was growing up, we had mm, three or four steel mills, and um, that's what people did. They went to work. I mean, the, some of the conditions weren't great, but they didn't complain. They persevered. They pushed through. And I'm talking about all colors. White, you know, blacks, uh, Hispanics, Latinos, you know, everybody worked. I mean, it was just, and I just showed you the perseverance and the grittiness that they had to, um, 
you know, go out and work and make a living for them, make a better living for themselves. And, you know, that's what it taught me. Like, you know, things that I saw and experienced growing up in, in, in my hometown, um, baseball had nothing, had nothing on that. Like, I mean, there was nothing baseball could do or show me that I hadn't seen, especially in a negative fashion. So, I mean, you know, my teammates complaining about, a, about certain things, that's going that they see in the clubhouse or certain foods or they just complaining because they come from a different, you know, demographic. I didn't complain about that because a lot of times it was better than where I came from. It was a lot better than where I had come from. So that's what it taught me not to complain, um, go to work every day, put in an honest day's work, push through, persevere, don't complain. And when you do that, a lot of times you're going to come out, you're going to come out with a smile on your face. You were drafted straight out of high school, as I said, by the Minnesota Twins. Did you think you were ready to go off and have that type of professional sport experience? No, I didn't think I was ready. I had no clue what it, what you know, being drafted entailed completely. And I'll tell you how naive I was. I thought when I got drafted, I was going straight to the major leagues. That's how naive I was about the process. <laughs> didn't know I was a long way from the major leagues. Um, but I was in my government econ class taking my finals, and the young lady walked in, handed my teacher Miss Boone a piece of paper, and she just, you know, smoothly and she just gliding over to my desk and put it on the corner of my desk. And I looked at it, I read it, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And but I needed to be passing this econ test, so I locked in on the test. And after the class is when I had a they had a, a chance to really set in and and. You know, at that point, I didn't think my life was going to change like it did. And being able to, baseball has given me the luxury to to leave home as a, a young kid and, and see parts of the country that I probably, I don't think I probably would ever see. Um, it made me, it, it also woke me up to the fact that I was good in my area, but in a grand scheme of things, with the collective talent from across the country, I was so far behind. Watching these guys when I first got to Fort Myers, Florida, I thought they were big leaguers already, the way they filled the ball, the way they threw the ball, the way they hit the ball. I had no clue. I didn't never experience anything like that. So I didn't think I was ready. Uh, but I knew I had one thing. I had perseverance. I was a good listener. I was a good athlete. And I was willing to uh, put in the work to be successful. In about a minute, tell me about what the minor league experience was like for you because you did uh, go through the minor leagues at a time and that I thought it was very colorful and it was a lot different than what it is today. Yes, completely different than it is today. Um, we didn't have all the luxuries. You had to um, you had to improvise on a lot of things. The food wasn't great. You know, you know better, you do better. We didn't know any better back then. Um, but I enjoyed it because, once again, I had a chance to go to places like Fort Myers, Florida, um, Elizabethan, Tennessee. Uh, luckily, in 93, when I was in A-ball, the Twins had just uh, signed a deal for our A-ball team to be in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I was two hours from home, and I had a lot of family was able to come see me my second year in professional, my third year in professional baseball. That helped. And then I had a chance to go to um, Nashville, Tennessee, and then Salt Lake City. So I got a chance to see places and – and adding to that, all the places that I had a chance to travel to when I played in those different towns. So Bristol, Connecticut, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Waterloo, Iowa. When I got to Salt Lake City, Phoenix, Edmonton, Calgary, um, um, 
Tacoma, just places that are probably little towns that I probably never would have been able to to go to and get to meet people from all walks of life. But Troy Hawkins is with us. We're talking about his life and his career. We'll continue to do so as we continue across the country and around the world. We've got you on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying, Cal's a bust. He can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? My first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> <laughs> bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be That's my game. That's my game. Troy Hawkins is with us here on Sports Byline USA. 21 years in the majors, pitching with 11 teams, relief pitcher. Did you always start out as a, as a pitcher, or did that come from another position, or did you play multiple positions as you were growing up in high school and then the early part with the Twins? Well, I was a, I played multiple positions growing up. When I got to high school, uh, I was primarily pitching and catching. And I got drafted as a pitcher. So that's the only thing I did as a professional was pitch. And I'm glad. Once you get into it, you don't understand how difficult it is to play two positions. It's hard enough to learn one position and everything that goes into it and the daily grind and the, the mechanics and the consistency. And when you're trying to figure out you know, playing offense and playing defense, it's it's a whole nother animal. So those guys that can do that are really good at both, they're ex- exceptional players. And their aptitude for learning and being able to apply what they learn is absolutely amazing. But, no, I was always a pitcher. I started uh, – I was a starter my first three and a half years in the big leagues. I think I got 98 career starts. That didn't work out for me. I was moved to the bullpen – and that's where my career started to really take off once I got to the bullpen and was able to uh, – I think for me it helped that I was engaged in the game every day. And as a starter, I was, you know, pitching every fifth day. What did you expect the major leagues to be like, and how were they similar to or different, Latroy? I had no clue what to expect when I got to the big leagues, but I knew that I was going to be facing guys that I actually watched on television growing up. So that right there – um, gave me some kind of um, you know anxiety to think that I would be facing you know Harold Baines and Frank Thomas, you know guys that I actually watched play for the Chicago, Chicago White Sox growing up, and I admired them. And 
You know, I would sit in the, you know, being watching the games and going through their, you know, trying to, you know, imitate their at bat and things like that. But, you know, it was everything. It was, <clears throat> it was something that as much as you prepare yourself in the minor leagues to get to the big leagues, when you get to the big leagues, there's just as much more to learn as you had learned already. And having a mental capacity to be able to do that, get better to get to the big league, and then once you make it, continue to get better every day because they're drafting the next player to take your position every year in June. When you came up, was there anybody that uh, took you underneath their wing to show you the ropes? Yeah, I had Kirby Puckett, um, Kevin Tappany, um, Rick Aguilera. So I had a, a, a veteran group that was um, – that was very, they were all professionals. They had been rookies before. They understood. So, you know, just having those guys to lean on and be able to talk to and, you know, being able to just talk to them about, you know, not having success because I didn't have a lot of success at the beginning. I had, I I mean, I, I went out there and failed repeatedly. I failed. I failed miserably. And it's definitely a hard pill to swallow but it's also a challenge to yourself to get better in all those areas, areas that, you know, was, that were the reason why you were failing at, at the major league level. So, man, I had some good mentors, and they definitely kept me sane, kept me motivated, um, helped me understand that, you know, it's not easy, and if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But, you know, you're special because you're here. Now you just got to figure it out, and that figuring out comes with going out there going out there, being put in different situations on the mound. That's how you figure it out. And once you start to figure it out, you start becoming comfortable in those uncomfortable situations, and then you're able to thrive in those situations. You made your Major League debut uh, early in 1995, and you talk about uh, struggling. (laughs) Tell me about that first game against the Baltimore Orioles. I really don't even remember it because it was a blur. I remember having (laughs) 45 people come to town from Indiana my parents and family come in town and that's all I remember. I remember it didn't go well. Um, I do remember not being nervous and that was pretty odd to me because I wasn't nervous. And a lot of times, most times, well, all the time you hear a guy making a major debut, they're nervous. They're nervous. Um, I wasn't nervous. And I think that played, uh, that negatively affected me because I wasn't nervous because I remember getting sent down that year and getting called back up in that September. And when I got called back up in September, I was so nervous I couldn't even sleep. I didn't have that issue the first time, but yeah, that was a tough go. That was a tough. That was part of my struggles as a starter, and it started with my first major league start against the Orioles. Well, I just couldn't. You know, I was throwing strikes, but I, I mean, they were hitting the ball all over the place and. You know, I just couldn't get it out. I remember, I think I remember I had a ground ball double play and it hit the runner. So we didn't, didn't, didn't have an opportunity to turn the double play that probably could have got me out of the inning. Instead, the runner, the runner was out and the, the hitter ended up getting a single. So and I remember the wheels falling off after that. Yeah, you gave up seven earned runs in only an inning and two-thirds of work, and that could be kind of uh, mentally destroying for someone. Do you realize or remember when you felt, hey, I can really pitch at this level? At what point was that, LaTroy? Oof. 
um, at what point did I realize it was probably about three years in, in between year three and year four, because there's always that, that, um, that area of doubt until you get really comfortable uh, and confident in what you're doing and confident that you're going to be successful every outing. It took me about three years or four years. And you're always, you're always, when you're young at the top of your sport, you always think that once you have a bad outing, you're going to get sent back down. And I always thought that. Um, and just because, you know, it was happening around me. But I had a great manager in Tom Kelly. Tom Kelly, you know, he saw something in Latroy Hawkins that Latroy didn't see in himself. And he would call me in his office. He was like, you keep working, young man. It's going to work out for you. Just keep working. But if I ever see you stop working or even think you stop working, I'm going to send you out of here. So I would walk out of Tom Kelly's office and not know if that was a good meeting or a bad meeting. <laughs> but I had him on my side. And I always talk about him when I talk about my career because he showed, he showed his, his, uh, his faith in me. And I think, I, I think after a while I started to see the potential in myself and was able to make it work. But it all started because Tom Kelly saw something in me and he gave me a chance when a lot of other teams would have given, would have given up on me. And TK never gave up on me. You know, one of the things I find interesting, LaTroy, is the fact that when a pitcher goes from being a starter to being a reliever like you did, they have to deal with a lot of different things. It's a completely different mindset. You don't know when you're going to go into the game. You also know when you're a starter, okay, I've got five days to prepare for this uh, batter or this team coming up as well. And then you've got the ego factor, you know, being the starter and now being a relief pitcher. That's a very interesting dynamic. Tell me how you work through that. Um, I remember in 99 and 2000 spring training, I started a couple games and then I would come in and uh, piggyback the starter. And I ended up making a team out of spring training. And we get to Minnesota. Tom Kelly calls me in his office. Hey, Hawk, we're going to, um, we're going to put you in the bullpen. I think there's going to be a good, good, um, good situation for you. And he said some other things, but my only question to him was, do I learn how to pitch out of the bullpen in the big leagues or I got to go to the minor leagues? He's like, no, nah, you get to learn here in the big leagues. I was like, well, I'm fine with the decision. Um, <laughs> but for me, I think it, it was all mental because when I was starting, I wasn't being successful. So I had four days in between to think about everything that went wrong in the start before. And four days was not enough time to, uh, was too much time for me to be, you know, just replaying um, what happened in the game before. Um, engaged, I think, you know, waiting those four days. I was a lot anxious a lot of times. Uh, had some fear some other times. But being a reliever, you know, I didn't have a chance to have that, that same anxiety. I didn't have a chance to have that same fear. Because had I gone out there in the, in the eighth inning with a two-run lead, and give up a three home three run home run and lose that lead. There's an opportunity that I could be out there tomorrow night in the same situation, and I can excel at it. But as a starter, you don't get that opportunity to be out there every day, or have the opportunity, the chance to be out there every day. So that helped me mentally, knowing that I could get right back out there and redeem myself. And it also helped me that I didn't have to face uh, lineups three times. 
can't say I did that a lot in my career as a starter because I never made it to the third time around. But, you know, I built this confidence that said, if I'm only going to face you one time. I'm going all out at you. And it's either you're going to get me or I'm going to, or I'm going to, or I'm going to get you. And started to, you know, just understand how hard it is to hit in the major leagues, to hit that round ball with a round bat. You got to be pretty good to do that consistently. And as we know, you know, in baseball, you fail more than you succeed. So I started to have that mentality, and that's when it started to turn around for me. We're talking with LaTroy Hawkins about his fine, fine career, 21 years with 11 teams, and he's a member of the 1,000 Games Pitch Club and also at 42 years of age. He was the oldest active player in Major League Baseball. We'll talk more about his fine career as we continue on America's Sports Talk Show. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky, they're saying, Cal's a bust, he can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That's my first game winner I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie, I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> Bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be That's my That's my game, <laughs> Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great, too with thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. LaTroy Hawkins is with us here on Sports Byline USA. He played for 11 different teams. And I, I just wondered, as you moved around baseball, how did you approach that? Because uh, you talk to players and they say, well, we, we want to know what our role is on a team. We want to know stability, all of those sort of things. But you were very adaptable. Where did that come from, LaTroy? Um, just, I think it came from my upbringing. And I understood that 
once I went to the bullpen and, and the way that the um, free agency market was going and where it was, that there's a good chance being a, a middle release guy to a late release guy that I would not be on the same team for the, my whole career. Um, that first two movements after I left Minnesota, the movement to Chicago, that was tough because Minnesota was the organization who drafted me. Minnesota was the organization who gave me the opportunity to be a big leaguer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I got traded from Chicago to San Francisco. And that was tough because I signed a three-year deal, two-year deal with a, a, a player option to be in Chicago for three years, and I was there a year and a half. After that, I became immune to it. I started looking at the positives of, um, you know, going to different teams, different cities, uh, the opportunity to get to meet new people, uh, different teammates, um, different GMs. And I just looked at it that way. It was an opportunity to, to um, go to 11 different cities and submerge myself in the, in the, uh, the community in those cities and see how different each city is and, you know, what they have you know, what, what pluses they have to offer and, you know, what the negative parts of that city is. So I had a, I had a definitely a great – I made my experience in 11 different cities what I wanted it to be. And I can tell you, I didn't have one city that I didn't enjoy because every city gave me something different. I was just going to ask you, with that much traveling, uh, besides uh, writing a book about where to eat dinner and where to live <laughs> in any of those cities, what did you learn about the people in this country? Um, I learned that, you know, it's funny because I think I learned more about people once I retired, because when you're, when you're a professional athlete, a lot of times, like you talk about the bubble because of now, now because of coronavirus, but I always talked about a bubble that we lived in because we have the best of everything, even though, you know, in this country, the more money you make, the more free stuff, you, more stuff you're giving, more less stuff you have to pay for. And, you know, it was just, when I retired, I had a chance to, to step away from that bubble and really see how hardworking Americans are and how hard you work doesn't equate to what you, you know, what you, what you bring home and how hard life really is for a lot of people in our country. Life is hard. Then you start to understand when you look at the news, you understand why things happen and how, you know, there's a part of our society, different ethnicities who feel completely left out in the American dream and not because of something that they, they've done just because of the system. And, you know, it was very alarming to me. Just, you know, once I stepped away from the bubble of being a professional athlete, it was very alarming to me. But I do know this, you know, Americans, we're very resilient people. Um, and I've traveled all over the world. I've been to probably 15 different countries. And, you know, people talk about America's the greatest country on the planet. Well, you know what? It is. It is. But I don't think you're allowed to say that if you hadn't been anywhere else. You don't have anything to judge you with. You have yeah, to go that- some other places before you can make that decision. Yeah, that, that's a very good point as well. Let me uh, list the teams that you played for. The Twins, of course, the Cubs, the Giants, Baltimore, Colorado, the Yankees, Houston, 
Milwaukee, also the Angels, and the New York Mets and Toronto Blue Jays. Now, I mention that because the one thing I know, having covered sports for such a long period of time, is that the fans are very provincial. They're different as fans in particular cities. And having been to all those cities, what did you notice about fandom in in various cities in the country? Um, I noticed that fans are very temperamental people. Um, I noticed that fans are so caught up in what you can, what you bring to their team and they completely forget that you're human. I learned that fans are, um, in certain cities are just as racist as they can be. They don't have a filter on what they think they can say to a, to a professional athlete. And I also learned that if you open yourself up to fans, 99% of them are really good people. They are really good people. But that that 1% is that 1% that keeps that doesn't allow players to open up to fans. And I'm talking about pre-social media. <laughs> pre-social media. <laughs> pre-social media. But, you know, 99% of the fans are really good, but you always have that, you always have that 1% that, that think that, you know, you're, you're property of them because you play for their team. And since they bought a ticket, they can say and try to do anything they want to you. And, you know, that's the only thing. That's, I mean, I've had some great experiences with fans. I had a fan club in Minnesota that's over, you know, 750 people. Um, and then I've had some bad experience with fans and my experience in Chicago with fans being racist towards me uh, because of, you know, I've given up a home run or didn't get the save or things like that. But, you know, fans are a part of our game. They are. They truly are. And like I said, 99% of fans are unbelievable. But it's just that 1% that can definitely uh, make that experience not happen like it should. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I've preached uh, on my program about that uh, because fans feel that because they bought that ticket, they have the right to do anything they want in reference to the sport, to the team, and also to the fan, and I've told them that's wrong. Let me ask you about being in New York with the Yankees because that's a very interesting market in itself. 2007, you had a situation, and I want to get uh, your side of this. You signed a one-year contract with the Yankees. You became the first player Mm -hmm. since outfielder Paul O'Neill to wear his jersey number 21 for the Yankees. And after a while, you returned from a road trip on April the 16th, and you changed your number to number 22 in response to the fans booing, yelling, and calling you uh, O'Neill's name when you took the field. That's never an easy situation, and I suppose in a market like New York particularly. So tell me your read on that whole thing. Uh, my read on that whole thing is I just didn't understand it. I really didn't. And it's not a knock to Paul O'Neill, but I was wearing a number because of Roberto Clemente. But the Yankee fans felt like I didn't have the right to wear that number. Now, granted, at that time, I probably had 10 years in the big leagues, but I didn't have the right to wear a number that was available on a team that I went to and I was a major league veteran. It just didn't, it didn't resonate with it. It didn't make sense to me. It still doesn't make sense to me. Um, and then what, what, what also doesn't make sense to me as much as they don't like Roger Clemens, I went to number 22 
and they were fine with that. <laughs> so the whole system, the whole situation was so bizarre. But I remember having a conversation with Jeter about he was like, "Hawk, it's up to you if you want to change your number, man." But I can tell you what, they're going to be relentless. They're not going to let up. They're not going to let up. And I had a conversation with Mariano. He said the exact same thing. So I decided to change the number. It didn't change our pitch. I was still, I still sucked. I still suck. <laughs> it didn't change our pitch, but I, I couldn't find the irony. I couldn't. I couldn't understand their reason. Their reasoning behind it. It wasn't okay to wear Paul O'Neill's number, but it was okay to wear Roger Clemens' number. I didn't. I still don't understand that. Like, uh, it'll be. It'll be really tough for you to help me understand that. It would be really gonna- tough. I can understand why you didn't understand it as well. Yeah. A friend of mine who was a, a Hall of Fame a reliever and now in the Hall of Fame played for the San Diego Padres. And I remember a conversation we were having, and I said to him, I said, what's the greatest asset a, a reliever can have? And he looked at me, smiled, and he said, a short memory. memory. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's not something Would always easy Trevor to Hoffman? have. Excuse me? Would that be Trevor Hoffman? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Great teammate, all around great guy, incredible human being. Incredible. But yeah, you're right. You got to have a short memory because you know, and that's and that, and that also reverts back to what I was saying as a starter when I had all that time to think about you know my my last outing as opposed to being a reliever. I had to have a short memory because I could be out there the very next night in the same situation facing that same guy. So I, you have to have a short memory because if you let what happened the night before creep into what's going on in that particular day, you're setting yourself up for failure. Your teammate up in Minnesota was Pat Mahomes, a pitcher as well, and you were the godfather of his son. Of course, everybody knows him now, Patrick Mahomes, a half a billion dollars. When you heard about that contract, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering, being a professional athlete, understanding it and everything, what was your read on that? And, and also, tell me a little bit about, about the, the young Patrick Mahomes, uh, the, the NFL football player since you're his godfather. So he he called me on side, that side of me before it, it was um, before I think it got it got released on Monday. It was yes. brought out on Monday, so he called me on that Saturday, and I was on the field because I'm in Minnesota right now with the big league team, and we're going through you know we're in the middle of a scrimmage. And he said, "Hey, you got time to talk?" And I was like, "I really don't, Patrick, because I'm you know I'm on the field." He was like, "I said, but I'm thinking we're, we're about 20 minutes from being done." He said, "All right, call me." When you get a minute, I'll say, I'll call you in about 20, 25 minutes. So I guess he couldn't wait. He texted me the terms of the contract. <laughs> he texted me the terms of the contract. <laughs> and I remember texting him back, and I was like, I'm going to call you when I'm done. I'm almost done. And <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah. And he, he texted, and I said, last picture, I'll text you in 20 minutes. And then he went on to tell me the, you know, the ins and outs of the contract. And I, in my next text to him, I said, I have chills. I'll call you. And then I text him, I'm done. And I was like, that was, and we talked about it. And we just talked about the, you know, everything inside the contract, not the actual number, because people get caught up in the number, you know, and, and you know, we don't, in the football, you just can't get caught up in that actual number. You got to you get caught up in, you know, the ins and outs of the contract because they work differently than basketball and football. You know, I mean, baseball. They work, NFL contracts are completely different. And he started telling me, 
you know, the ins and outs. And I was, and I just had chills. And I'm like, well, we knew it was going to be, you know, a whole lot of money. And I asked him how he felt. And then when I was telling him about, you know what, just told him how proud I was of him. And, you know, I really, you know, I really don't talk a lot of football with him. But I always talk to him about, you know, being a good leader and continue to be a good leader in that clubhouse. Because, you know, everybody's looking for a good leader. And without good leadership, um, that's when things start to go haywire. And I just, you know, just urge him to continue to be as you are. And, you know, we're not going to let the money change us. You won't do that. You know, you, you who you are because of your, your character and your morals and things that you stand by. And those things aren't going to change because you have money. And you know what? That was the last, you know, I texted him the other day because Josh Donaldson was asking about him. But, you know, we talked that day and that was it. But he's a, he's a very smart kid. And when he was at Texas Tech, you know, everybody, ah, oh, Patrick's this, Patrick's that. I was like, you guys know he's on the Dean's list too, right? He's not just a good quarterback. He's very, he's a highly intelligent young man. And, and that he is. He has a photographic memory. He's very thoughtful. He's committed to making an impact in his community, whether it's in, you know, in Texas and Kansas City. Um, he's very conscious about that. Uh, he just did that special. I mean, did a, um, he's um, on the cover of August um, GQ magazine, and he talked about some tough issues um, and how proud he talked about. Maybe one powerful statement about how proud he was of being a, a black man, and he's just as proud of having a white mom. And, you know, those things go a long way because, you know, you know, he gets some stuff on, he talked about some of the stuff he's gotten on, on social media about you're not black, you're not white, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we've always talked, talked about do not ever let somebody put you in a box. You'd be proud of your white side. You'd be proud of your black side because you're lucky enough to have both. Be proud. Latroy, I want to thank you very much. Latroy, I want to thank you very much. I have enjoyed this conversation as I have with every conversation you and I have had over the years, and not only 21 years. I mean, that gets my total respect uh, for the way you approach your life and approach baseball as well. Take care, my friend. You're welcome here anytime. Thank you. Anytime you want me on, I'm on. Bye-bye. Latroy Hawkins with us, 21 years as a relief pitcher with 11 different teams. We continue with more of you and Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios, and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. 
Join me and my husband, big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order.